Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Today we are speaking with Jess about their experience as a trafficking survivor. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alexa Sardina. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Jess grew up in the duality of New York City and Seattle. They settled in the Pacific Northwest and earned their bachelor's degree in criminal justice from the University of Washington. While attending undergrad courses, Jess found a passion for restorative justice and a desire to influence policies responding to real-life circumstances. Advocating for change, Jess challenges systemic racism and the false narratives of popular culture. After several years in the social justice arena, Jess made the decision to pursue their master's degree in social work to expand their professional process. Embracing adversity and a colorfully diverse background, Jess is focused on the advancement of transformative justice and continues their commitment to harm reduction and enhancing repair one person at a time. So I am super excited about recording this episode today and excited Maybe doesn't sound like the right word given the topics that we're going to be covering today. But Lex, so you know, Jess is my best friend in the whole world. Uh, We've known each other for over a decade. And, you know, so much of who I am in the world today and, and how I navigate the world as a survivor is because of Jess and the influence that they have had on my life. And so, like, to say that the podcast coming to fruition and all of the things that we have done together, you and I as colleagues and friends, could not have happened without my connection to Jess. So Jess, to have you on the podcast as a guest is such a huge honor for me. For me as well. Same. I too wouldn't exist in the world as I do without our connection. So I'm very happy to be here. I hope that I know that uh, what you will be sharing today will be really educational for and important for our listeners to hear. Uh, You know, I know that those of you listening today, I I hope you recognize that, you know, Jess's story is but one story, but it's a very powerful testimony. Uh, And I'm just so grateful that you said yes. I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. To start off, this is an episode on trafficking. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the moment that you realized that you had been trafficked. So my story is a little different than most of the trafficking stories that you hear. So just going to put that out there. I was in my undergrad and a part of my uh, student association And we were on our way back from meeting with a coalition on human trafficking that we were sponsoring. 
And everyone in the car had taken the human trafficking course. And I, I did not, but we were driving. Uh, my professor was driving our advisor and everyone was talking about human trafficking and what they knew. And I asked, I said, so if a parent trades their child's innocence for drugs, is that human trafficking? To which my advisor, who knew a little bit of my history, while she's driving, turns to me and says, you really need to stop talking to your mother. (laughs) And the best moment was the look on her face when she realized there was a car full of students and she just basically outed some of my story without talking to me first. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. She, however... um, was so distracted by it, she missed her exit. <laughs> so, um, but that, that was the moment that I figured out that I could have been trafficked. I had not taken that class and her response indicated so, but wasn't a definite. But that's, that was the beginning to my questioning if that was really what happened. Uh, I always knew I had been abused and exploited, uh, but I, I didn't realize that it fell under the realm of trafficked because my experience is a little different than what you typically hear about. I can only imagine the intensity of that happening, you know, during your undergrad years, but can you kind of take us back to where you, your story started? Yeah, it goes way back. <laughs> I was super young. I I was about four uh, when I have my, my first memory of things happening. I was about four. And my mother was right next to me. And she was engaged in sexual activity with this man who at the same time was touching me. And for a four-year-old, it was really confusing because my mom was there. (laughs) So I didn't really know what to make of that. And so I just pretended to be asleep. And this type of experience happened many times with this person. Um, He happened to be a doctor And I started trying to sleep in other places, but they always came and got me and put me in his bed. I tried falling asleep in the bathroom. Uh, He had a son. I tried falling asleep in his room, uh, behind the couch, anywhere I could find to hide. And every time I was brought back to his bed and... My mother wouldn't let me sleep with underwear. She said I needed to, you know, my body parts needed to breathe. And in hindsight, I think she was fully aware of what was happening. So that, that's the beginning. And that went on until I was about seven. It stopped for a year, though. We moved to Minneapolis for about a year when I was five. 
when we went back to Connecticut, it started again. Can you talk a little bit, Jess, um, about why this experience or, or these experiences with this doctor constitute trafficking? I needed that verification. When I started talking about it, other people recognized that it definitely was an incident of trafficking. And I was invited to attend a panel of uh, survivors. And I didn't feel like I had a valid voice at the table. So I called this professor, the advisor from that car ride, and told her that I needed to see it. I needed her to show me on paper the statutes that indicate I had, in fact, been trafficked. And so we got together for some coffee, and she put it down in black and white for me and went through every law, and and it expressed that was my experience. Uh, I was used as a commodity, and it, I think it was the moment that it happened in his car was a moment that I really felt, okay, that definitely falls in line with some of the statutes. And we did cross state lines once. And so that added uh, some validity to it. But at the end of the conversation, uh, this professor said, but you don't need to wear that label if you don't want to. And I just smiled real big and said, no, thank you. I needed to know I had that label so that I feel like my voice is pertinent and part of the conversation and can make a difference. So it was the exchange of your innocence for drugs? Yes. So my mom had an opiate addiction, and he was a doctor, and basically would show up at our door with a jar full of pills and say, if you come to my beach house, you can have as many as you want, but you got to bring Jess with you. So she did, which, you know, led to other experiences. Once, once that happens from such a young age and your mother is right there, you kind of lose sight or have no idea. You think this is normal and that it's what you're supposed to do. So that sounds like the start of the abuse that happened. And can you kind of tell us how that continued or how that changed or shifted over time as you got older? Sure, I definitely. Marshall was not the only person who I believe engaged in this type of exploitation. I had several other incidences with individuals uh, who I believe I would not have been in the presence of if my mom wasn't there doing some hardcore drugs. Uh, pretty sure she had a heroin addiction. I did end up in like, we were at truck stops and I ended up in the cab of semi trucks. She had a mechanic who we visited every once in a while. And then additionally, outside of her addiction, I believe that I probably had the word victim on my forehead. And if you put me in a room with a thousand people and there was one predator guaranteed they were going to find me. I had three significant uh, abusers who were drawn out and happened many, many multiple times. Uh, the second one was my friend's dad. And the third one was <clears throat> the superintendent of our apartment building when we moved to New York City. And both of those people 
took advantage of my mother's drug addiction, but I do not believe I was being trafficked in those situations. I can go into detail, uh, but that does bring me to another piece, which is my queerness. I believe that my next two significant abusers recognized that I had this lack of identity and that added to my vulnerability. So my friend's dad, I think he recognized and heard me question my gender quite a bit. I was friends with all the boys. They all thought I was a boy, but it was not. <laughs> and uh, I knew I wasn't a girl, but I also knew I wasn't a boy. So I just thought I was very broken and, you know, walked through my childhood, not really sure who I am. And my mom in that situation with my friend's dad, she, I believe they were doing drugs together and to appease my, you know, young energetic self, she cut out paper dolls for hours and hours for me. So I had a million paper dolls and I'd make little families and they'd all come from the same set. And then the character that represented me was always from a different set. Sometimes a person, sometimes a cat, sometimes a dog, sometimes a bear. But I played with these paper dolls a lot. And this friend of mine lived downstairs from us. So we were super, super close. And there were several times we spent the night at their house. Sometimes me by myself, sometimes my mom uh, with me. And his dad used to come in and abuse me at night. And I, I believe those things are connected. That my lack of knowing who I am and during the day doing all of the things with all of the boys. And then at night playing with paper dolls. It was, uh, both felt right, but I knew I could look over my mother's, you know, eyes were rolling to the back of her head. And so I just played quietly. So again, with, with this second significant abuser, I pretended to be asleep because I didn't know what else to do. I knew that that stopped things from happening farther than they did, but it also allowed me, I think, to pretend it wasn't happening. Thank you for sharing that, Jess. When you were just talking, you talked about how the people who abused you after that first experience of trafficking recognized in you a lack of identity. And, you know, in knowing you and knowing your story, I recognize that in hindsight, you can see that what they saw was your queer identity. And, you know, now being open as queer and non-binary has changed things for you and your understanding of all of this. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the silencing effect of not having the language to describe your gender or to describe your queer identity and how that influenced your silence around the abuse, like not having a voice around your gender, your queer identity, and not having a voice around, you know, speaking out about the abuse. You can kind of talk about that. As a child or, you know, adolescent, I had a feeling that I just looked super vulnerable. I wasn't necessarily cognizant of it, but based on the number of times that I had been abused, I... Again, I felt like I had the word victim written on my forehead. 
So with my mother being there, I thought that was my role in the world. I, I didn't know I had a choice. I didn't have a voice. Because at the same time as these things happening, I was questioning my gender and would say things like, I'm not a girl. And I was told, you're a pretty sweet girl. Don't sit like that. Girls don't talk like that. And I knew I wasn't a boy. And because I didn't have the language of non-binary, I went back and forth between knowing I wasn't a girl and knowing I wasn't a boy. Therefore, I'm broken And that's why these things are happening to me over and over again. Partly because it's my role and partly because I deserve it because there's something wrong with me. So I was primed for the next significant abuser who, again, took advantage of the lack of presence of my mother, but also recognizing that by providing me moments with your typical boy experiences, like watching action movies, as well as the first time he lured me uh, into staying with him was by telling me he was waiting for his wife and describing her being in a, a dress with flowers on it, which made it feel safe, and it was not. And eventually he became my babysitter, Um, His wife talked my mom into taking a pottery class once a week. So it started in his apartment. It was pretty minor compared to other experiences. I mean, none of this is minor, but uh, in comparison to my other experiences, it was basically just some like inappropriate rubbing. And eventually this pottery class turned into two nights a week. And that's when things got much worse. And it started, um, it was our apartment. So he would come to our apartment on Tuesdays and Thursdays while my mom went to this pottery class. And for a long time, she thought that Little House on the Prairie made me extra emotional because it happened to be on at, I think it was five o'clock. It was on right before Joe was coming. And I would kind of freak out a little bit. I got extra emotional and she blamed it on this television show for years and years. But I think it was just my little body and brain knowing what was coming. And as I said, it it, it got worse and worse. And this um, abuse occurred from age nine to age 12. Uh, and eventually he raped me. And I still remained silent. Oh, there's reasons for that. The day that he did get me to stay in the hallway, I was super late. I was about an hour late getting home. And my mom was screaming at me. When I came through the door, she said, we have an appointment and now we're late because of you. And she took me to this appointment anyway. And we, it didn't work out because we were so late. And so she yelled at me the whole way home. And it was about two days later, she started yelling at me again about being late that night. And I broke into tears, told her what had happened. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was this superintendent of ours. This was my first encounter with him. And my mom called the police. And so NYPD came out, a female officer, 
with these two giant D-ring notebooks full of mugshots and sent me into my room with these two binders to see if I could identify this man. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen mugshots, but put a thousand of them in a notebook and a eight and a half, nine-year-old, it was terrifying. But I went through page after page, couldn't find him. I think I stopped after the 10th or 12th page because they just got too much. And I, I brought the notebooks out and said, I, I couldn't find him. And this police officer turned to me and said, are you sure you're not making this up because you got in trouble? And in that moment, I realized that even when I do tell someone I'm not believed. And so I didn't talk about the previous experiences for different reasons. And this time with this particular person, I didn't say anything for three years because it was my mother's best friend's husband. And I felt like, well, if the police didn't believe me about that, and my mom didn't believe me about that, she's never going to believe me about this. And so when I did have the words, they were taken away from me. And same with my gender. I, I didn't have the words because they didn't exist at the time. But the words that I did have to question uh, were shut down. I'm so sorry to hear that, Jess, because trying to speak about it and then being disbelieved, I think, is such a painful experience and so invalidating that, you know, it's not surprising then that you wouldn't talk about it or, you know, bring it up. And then especially to also, as you said, not have the words around what you were experiencing as well is incredibly confusing and painful, I can imagine. And, you know, you kind of touched on earlier the experience of having words for being trafficked and when you sort of started speaking about that. Um so I'm just wondering if, you know, what the what the feeling was of understanding that versus understanding that, you know, you were you were sexually abused. What what was the different feelings around those things? Well, when it comes to uh, my sexual abuse, I've always known that first experience with my mother there. That's that's something I've never forgotten. And for many, many years, it was something that I thought about at least once a day. I mean, there was something always that reminded me. And so I, I believe that when I finally was able to talk about that, it wasn't something that I didn't know. And even when my mother still wasn't believing me, I was 18 when I first disclosed. And she said, are you sure you're remembering correctly? <laughs> and I can't attest to every incident. But I remember that first one pretty vividly. Through lots of counseling, I eventually was able to talk about it. There was another incident that I didn't mention that I think adds to just my overall not really knowing myself and not knowing the words and not knowing what to say and feeling silenced. 
but I was about 16 and taking a acting class down in Alphabet City. I don't know if you're familiar with New York, but most of the streets are numbers. When you get way downtown, they turn into letters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I grew up on the, like, up in the 80s, uh, mm-hmm. east and west side. So I'm taking this class in an area that I have never lived, that I've, I'm only there for this class, and I was late. And so I was running to get there, literally running. And a person walked out of a building, and I ran right into them, like smacked right into them and fell on the ground. And they reached down to help me up, and it was the man who abused and raped me. <laughs> Of all the people in New York City and of all the places that that could have happened, it was so shocking and so terrifying. Yeah. He came in to hug me because he recognized me. And I took a step back. And I actually, I lit a cigarette and I I thought, if you try to touch me again, (laughs) I will burn you. (laughs) And I just said, I'm super late. I, I have to go. And I took off running again. Can't tell you what direction I ran. Can't tell you where I went, but I ended up at a payphone and called someone to come and get me. But I couldn't even tell them where I was. And so that actually silenced me for several more years. Like that stopped me from talking about it because I was reminded. I I think it was, I was starting to feel like I could talk about it because I was in this acting group that handled real world issues and approached them in a way that we could present at schools. And so I was starting to like really lean into it and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to disclose to someone. And then that happened. And I didn't talk about it for another two years. Shocking to hear. He also showed up at my house once when I was in junior high. And it was Thanksgiving. And my mom was at the store. And the doorbell rang, like downstairs, the buzzer, and I didn't buzz anyone in. And then there was a knock on the door and I opened it. And sure enough, it was him. He said that he and his wife had been invited to Thanksgiving and I just walked away. I went and sat down on the couch. And when I did that, I kind of, I kicked the remote control away from the couch so that when he sat down on the couch, I moved to the floor and picked up the remote control and started changing the channels. And he said, if you're worried about me touching you, don't worry, you're too old for that. I think I was 13. And then the phone rang and I answered it. I don't know who it was. No idea who was on that phone. But I said, hold on. It's okay. I'm going to call you back. And I hung up and I waited 10 minutes and I called a friend of mine who lived down the street and I was like, Hey, stop fighting with your mom. And he's on the other line going, huh? And I was like, no, really stop yelling at your mom and just meet me on the corner. And he's like, Jess, what are you talking about? I'm like, really stop yelling at her. Just leave, leave your apartment and meet me on the corner. And so I got off that phone and said, I have to go tell my mom I'll be back later. And I left. And I remember it's Thanksgiving. (laughs) And so my mom 
got back and I wasn't there. I have no idea what happened, but I walked for hours with my friend without speaking. And he walked with me for hours without speaking. And eventually he said, let's go to a movie. So we went and saw a movie and then walked in silence back to my apartment. And I remember him asking me if I was okay to go home. And at this point I figured my mom was there, but let me call and check. So I called and she started screaming at me and I hung up and I'm like, she is there. Let's go to another movie. And so we went to another movie and I don't, I think it was like 10 o'clock when I got home and she yelled at me for an hour, but everybody that was going to be there was gone. And so I let her yell. I always knew I had been sexually abused. And so that made it kind of easier to process in a sense. Not that it was easy. It took me years and years and years to be able to talk about it. But figuring out that I had been trafficked in the way that I figured it out, it didn't feel real for a minute. It didn't. It felt like I'm remembering a movie. Like, you know, I, this isn't really my life. This isn't what really happened. But the day that my mom asked me if I was remembering correctly, I thought, no, I know. I remember. And after I disclosed, I couldn't remember Marshall's name, the doctor. And I called her one day and said, "I, I can't remember his name. I would really like you to tell me. And she said, I don't remember either. About six months later, again, Thanksgiving, but a week before Thanksgiving, I get a phone call from her and all she says, I answer the phone and the woman says, Marshall, his name was Marshall. It was kind of like that day I ran into my other abuser. I, that is not the way you tell somebody the name of someone who sexually harmed them when they were four years old. I, I hung up on her because I was kind of like, okay. But then I remembered, I remembered his full name at that point. And a week later I went to Thanksgiving and my parents had been divorced since I was about two. I don't even remember them ever being together. And my dad and I went for a walk And he thanked me for disclosing because he was the first person I had told. And he said, if you ever want to talk more about it, you know, I'm here. And I shared with him the phone call that I got from my mother a week prior. And he said this man's full name, which was the first time I realized that my dad knew who he was. And then also knew about my mother's drug addiction and never did anything to keep me safe. And I think that's a big piece of this. Nobody kept me safe and nobody allowed my authentic existence. I think you bring up a really important point that we have talked about before on the podcast. You know, there are certain risk factors 
for uh, trafficking. There are certain risk factors for sexual abuse, one being queer identity, right? LGBTQ youth are significantly more likely to experience both sexual abuse and trafficking than cisgender heterosexual youth. Uh, Having a parent with a drug addiction is a significant risk factor for sexual abuse, right? And you had both of those things. So it's not surprising that these are the experiences that you had when you were so young. By the time that you and I met, you had already done significant healing work, right? There is so much that I learned from you around how you heal from sexual harm. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the difference in the healing work you had to do or changes to the healing work you were doing once you named and understood that you had been trafficked by your mom and how that changed your relationship with her. I had stopped talking to my mom on and off throughout my adulthood. I think I was in my early 30s the first time I stopped talking to her for about six months. I was in my mid-30s when I talked stopped talking to her for about three years. I was 38 that day that my professor put it down in black and white and went through the uh, laws. And in that moment, I recognized that my mother still had this drug addiction, and I didn't owe her anything anymore. And so I stopped talking to her again, this time a little more permanently. Part of it was knowing myself more, and again, that piece that I didn't owe her anything. I even made a joke about her dying so that I could breathe. And two days later, she died. You know, another one of those moments, like running into that person and bouncing off of him onto the street. However, the first time I gave a talk about being trafficked, in that moment, I was able to recognize that my mom was also exploited. Like I learned some of her history after she died and that she really was just doing what she knew how to do. And I found some forgiveness for her. Once I got that validation of what my experience really was, and I was able to put words to it, the amount of growth I felt in that moment was exponential. And I started to recognize that I can put words to my experience, but I still don't have words for who I am. Because these are just labels that I carried, but they weren't who I was. Like That's part of the work that I did for so many years, is to recognize that you are not your experiences. So finding that out kind of validated that I did remember things correctly, that they weren't my imagination, and I was able to kind of not put it to rest by any means, but I stopped needing as much counseling regarding uh, my sexual trauma because I had kind of worked through all of it and processed at the time as much as I knew. There was another piece of this that was happening at the same time. So that day in the car (laughs) when I was told to stop talking to my mother (laughs) in front of all those other students, At the time, I expressed myself as a cisgender um, female. I was in my uh, second marriage to a cis straight man. 
and I realized that I was queer and I was allowed to be, that it wasn't, I'd been kissing girls since I was six, but my mom always told me that all girls do that. All girls hold hands, all girls experiment with each other. And so I pretty much had her permission. And then both of my husbands encouraged me to kiss women. And so again, had their permission. And it wasn't about me. It was about making other people gratified. And then I realized one day, I don't need anyone else's permission. And so at the same time as like figuring out my full experience, I also started to allow my full existence. So I want to give our listeners a visual. Um, you know, you were just talking about how, you know, you saw a picture of my wife and my children. You saw my PhD on the wall and realized that you can be queer and still be successful. You can be open and it's safe to do so. So I want to take our listeners back to the first day we met. So Jess was actually a student of mine the first class I ever taught at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And, you know, Jess, you were supposed to be in a different class and ended up deciding that you didn't want to take that class, went to the advisor, and it turned out the only other class offered at that time was the class that I was teaching. And so, you know, Jess comes over to the classroom and the door is locked. And, you know, eventually Jess is able to come in. And they sit down and I add in the process of talking to my students about being queer. Like it is the first day of class and I'm like up there just talking about my wife and talking about my queerness. And that was a really pivotal moment for you. Likewise, you were sitting in the front row wearing a necklace that signified that you were the survivor, you were a survivor of sexual harm. And I had never seen anyone wear something signifying that so openly. So here I was just fully owning my queerness in full confidence in front of a classroom of 40 students. And you had never seen anybody do that. And here you were sitting in the classroom wearing a necklace signifying that you were a survivor of sexual abuse. And I had never seen anybody do that, but you were my student. Right. And so after you graduated, we built a really beautiful friendship. But it was that moment, I think, just sort of the serendipitous moment that we both realized that what the other person was doing was possible. And was the the moment that laid the groundwork for each of us having the language that we both needed. Definitely a life-changing moment that really signifies the very beginning of this journey to our authenticity and allowing our full stories uh, within our full selves. Yeah, so your queerness was for everyone to see and my survivorship was for everyone to see. Who knew we had each other's words? Well, and it's, you know, it speaks to this question that Alexa was asking you about, like, you know, talking about how your relationship with yourself has shifted over time. So much of that has to do with having the language. It's the reason I am so open about all of my things now. 
I wasn't a decade ago. But the reason I'm so open about all of the things is because it provides language for other people. And, you know, your ability to be open provides so much language for me. I'm grateful, forever grateful for that. Because without that language that you gave me, I never would have met Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) All things are connected. Yeah. It's it's all connected. Full circle. I didn't know that story. I don't know how I didn't know that story, but it's because it's such a good one. But it's amazing. And I'm so happy it happened. Yeah, it was actually that was the day that I went into your office because I was not on your class roster. And so we walked back into your into your office and that's when I saw your PhD and I saw this picture of your wife and your one child at the time. And it was a kind of a life changing moment and hearing you talk about it so openly in front of all of the students really made it feel safe. You obviously had experience helping others work through experiences with child abuse and healing for that. And and in a way, having a seat at the table, as you'd say, like for that experience. But what has it meant to feel that feeling of sharing your experience and having a voice to talk about how it feels and your experiences as a trafficking survivor? So I think that these are connected. Prior to figuring out that I had been trafficked, I recognized that the healing and growth comes from sharing your story and sharing your experiences of healing. And the moment that the growth occurs is when you hear someone else tell another person their story. So running that support group, I was able to see that over and over again, and it was really amazing. And so when I found out that, not found out, but when I uh, really recognized and, and put words to and named that I had been trafficked, I had a voice at a different table, still survivors of sexual harm, but on a whole different plane. And because my story was so different than most, that's where I didn't feel I was valid. But once I received that affirmation that this really was what happened, I joined this panel and did a lot of public speaking and just contributed to other people's healing. And I think that the the most significant piece is that uh, part of this coalition that I was aligned with used to, or maybe they still do, uh, go to schools, mostly high schools, and And bring their panel and have a conversation about human trafficking and what that can look like in high school. And my story was so different than most of the people on the panel. But when you would see a student realize that's their story too. Had I heard my story in junior high or high school or even elementary school, I would have recognized in that moment, oh, I am being trafficked. So seeing that work and seeing the difference that it can make for youth was really powerful and just made me want to talk more about it and dive deeper into it. I had to process a lot that I hadn't processed before. Not a ton, but still some things that I had not had counseling for because that was a whole nother label. 
Can you talk a little bit about what those sort of different things were or the things that you hadn't worked on necessarily when you were working through things related to child sexual abuse? The biggest one is the fact that my mom knew. I always knew she had been right there, but I didn't realize that she was fully aware of what was going on. But I mean, I don't even know if I can say that she was very drug induced. But um, when she was sober, she made the decision to bring me over there. So that was the biggest piece was working through the fact that my mother was a part of the abuse, not just putting me in the situation, but actually physically right there. So when we originally conceived of this episode, we sort of recognized that you can't have an episode with a trafficking survivor who's queer or trans or non-binary without also having a conversation about their experiences as being queer or non-binary or trans, right? Because they're so inextricably linked. So in the moment that you first realized that you had been trafficked, you hadn't come to terms with being queer, right? Like you had that spark from when we first met, but you hadn't come to terms with being queer. You were years off from coming to terms with being non-binary. But by the time you sat down with that professor, I guess you had partially come to terms with your queer identity. Can you talk about coming to terms with being queer and your journey to coming out as non-binary? And then perhaps relate that back to kind of the understanding of trafficking. Yes. As all things are connected, naming being trafficked allowed me to name some other things. And in the middle of this, so my mom passed away, uh, my dad passed away, and then both of my grandmothers passed away. And I was able to breathe for the first time. I was able to kind of start to exist for the first time because these people in my life who uh, loved me but never kept me safe also never allowed me to exist. And so after they all died, I recognized that I was unhappy in my marriage because I was queer. And my husband, ex-husband actually said one of the most beautiful things to someone Uh, when he was asked if he had uh, any animosity towards me for, you know, leaving him for somebody assigned female at birth. And he said, who am I to deny Jess a lifetime of love? So I called my grandfather and told him I needed to chat. And so I went to visit him and I said, I have something to tell you. I think I'm a lesbian. And even though he said, I know, which made me feel like, well, if you know, why didn't I know? At the moment that I said those words, they didn't feel right. Coming out, though, uh, as far as my orientation, was accepted, for the most part, by most of my family. And I recognized how much time I had wasted being afraid to acknowledge that I enjoyed kissing women. So opening the door to acknowledging that and allowing that and living in that space, kind of, For the most part, Um, I was dating several different people, but I did end up with a partner who's a trans man. I started to question some things, but it wasn't until this day that this partner asked me if I had ever thought I was a boy as a child. And I, I thought, no, I did not. 
but I was still questioning why the word lesbian didn't feel right other than this particular relationship. And it was about a week later that Alyssa and I were together in the car and she looked over at me and asked me if I, as a child, I ever thought I was a boy. And there was no other conversation. I had not mentioned the conversation with my partner at the time. I don't even know what prompted this question, but my exact answer in that moment was no, <laughs> not at all, except maybe on a car ride when I needed to pee and wish I had a penis, but that was it. Like never in my youth did I think I should have had a penis or was born in the wrong body. No, not at all. That night, all of a sudden, a flood of memories came flying into my brain. And so, like I said earlier, I ran a support group for adult survivors of child abuse, all types. And several people had repressed memories. And at the time, I didn't think that was possible. I had remembered my sexual abuse, that first experience, my whole entire life. It was something that I never forgot. And so I didn't believe there was such a thing as a repressed memory. I, not that I ever said that to anyone. I was always very supportive, but in the back of my mind, I was questioning, how do you not know? How do you not remember? So fast forward to this day that I was asked for the second time in one week, if I had ever questioned my gender and my response being no, not at all. That night was the first night I remember being told, no, you're a pretty sweet girl. Pretty sweet girls don't sit like that. Pretty sweet girls don't talk like that. Pretty sweet girls don't play like that. I questioned my gender so many times as a child, over and over and over again, and constantly being told, no, you're a pretty sweet girl, ties back to some of my sexual abuse. Again, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I thought that was my role in the world. And because I was a pretty sweet girl, I didn't say no. So in those moments that I had these flashbacks and realized that repressed memory is really a thing, like it's real. You just don't get to choose what you repress, nor when you remember it. And so... Because my partner at the time was a trans man, I thought maybe that was my story too, because I still, I always knew I wasn't a female. Like I knew that as a child, I gave birth to a child. And even in that moment knew I was not a woman. Like I didn't ever feel like a female. And so I decided to cut off my hair and start using he, him pronouns. And that felt really good for a while. I mean, that felt way better than she, her. And like, I knew I was onto something. I started to recognize my own reflection in the mirror. Not fully, but started to. And previously, I was a different person in every relationship, every environment, and in every role. I was not my full self. 
And so there were different aspects of myself that I allowed to show in those different environments. But when I started using he, him pronouns, I slowly started to be the same person in all of the places. And one day somebody called me he or him and it didn't feel so good. And then I went back to this whole, like, I am broken. There is something terribly wrong with me. It must have been the sexual harm I experienced at such a young age. Like I blamed everything on that. I had this giant hole in my stomach that I tried filling with food for most of my life. And, you know, I went back to questioning things, but still didn't have the language. I thought the only options were male or female. I, I didn't know there were other options in the world. And I was really fortunate. I was sent to a uh, gender forum in San Francisco while still using the he, him pronouns, but then not feeling so right. And I was in this room and there were speakers. And all of a sudden, somebody got up on the stage, introduced themselves using the pronouns they, them, which I had not heard before, and started telling a story about feeling like a mismatched paper doll. It was that moment that I realized I wasn't broken, that there are other people in the world who feel like I do. And I started to look around and I realized that I was surrounded by people who were just like me. And then I heard the term non-binary and almost instantly this hole (laughs) that was in the pit of my stomach my whole life started to dissipate. You know, so here's the thing. You were talking earlier about speaking in elementary schools and speaking to young people and, you know, them seeing themselves. And there's a piece of that that is the converse, right? That when you see people who have similar experiences, you recognize them. So despite the fact that you didn't know that you were queer, that you were non-binary, that you fell under the trans umbrella, I knew from the day I met you, (laughs) but it was your journey. That's not something that I can say to you. Oh, by the way, if you right, like it wasn't until we had built a friendship that I could ask the question, have you ever thought about your gender identity? But I knew just as you knew the day that you met me, that I was a survivor, but you couldn't tell me that. Right? Because we all have to take our own journeys. So you see in others what you know in yourself. And also, you have an example. And so when you don't have the language and you don't have people in your world who represent who you are, there's no voice in that. There's no... I mean, you add all my other experiences as well. But that was part of it. I didn't have anyone in my life who looked like me or the way I felt I should look. Um definitely didn't have the language. So those are the pieces. I think that I talked a lot about my survivorhood and that gave you some of the language. And you talked about knowing that you were queer from such a young age and felt like you know so powerful and so brave. So thank you for that language. So I was going to just say, as an observation, but also 
as a survivor who's been a lot around survivors sharing their stories is I think the sense of empowerment when you hear someone share their story in a way that's without shame, right? It like sort of breaks the shame feelings that you have inside that maybe you didn't even realize were there, but I think that are so tied into feeling alone and isolated. So I I hear that just coming through both of you and your, you know, exchange of story and reflection of each other, which is really powerful. Yes, thank you for acknowledging that. You're welcome. That's exactly it. That word shame. I felt shame in every aspect of who I was. And I felt like a sham. I felt like I was so fake all the time pretending to be what I am not. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to you to feel seen, to feel valued, to be affirmed for your authentic self? What has that meant to you? Hmm. Everything. It has meant everything. From being able to take a breath to recognizing my own reflection to feel valid and worthy when being seen by others, but not seeing yourself, it was really hard. And again, I felt like there was something wrong with me, but all of a sudden being seen by others as the way I recognized my own reflection in the mirror was so freeing and so much growth and confidence. It's like I went backwards and redeveloped as this person versus uh, that person that had a victim written on their forehead. Yeah, that disappeared for you. It did. Right? Like, I remember the day you walked up my front path of my home in Washington, and you cut your hair for the first time. And you walked up, and I was just like, there you are. You carried yourself very differently. I always knew I was a survivor, but I really, I think in that moment, I went beyond that. Fitting that it's this podcast where I'm talking about that. But I did. I had a lot of fear in letting the world see me. And I recognize because of my age, it's very possible that I did not come into existence until I was supposed to. Because maybe had I had that language... If I had had that language as a child, I could have been really unsafe for other, other reasons. I spent most of my life unsafe in my own body and, you know, potential harm from my own self. But I believe that if I had known the language and allowed my authenticity, you know, back in the early eighties, I would have been unsafe more than just being a victim of sexual abuse. So freeing. It was freeing and I I grow every day. I learn something new about myself every day, still. Sort of to take the flip side and I also think it's really p- important for people to understand how it feels when you don't feel seen or when you don't feel affirmed. Can you talk a little bit about that? I felt suffocated. I used to have to remind myself to breathe because I would hold my breath so often 
And I think that actually came from the whole pretending to be asleep as a child. I think, you know, I may have also held my breath so that I wasn't moving at all. But not being seen and not being affirmed for who I am as a person outside of the labels I carry and my experiences has made such a difference because when I wasn't seen, I felt so isolated. And as I said before, I was a different person in all spaces and beyond code switching. It started as a child where I didn't think about what was happening to me at night during the day. So when I was a student at school, I wasn't thinking about being abused at home. When I was spending the weekend with my grandparents, I didn't think about the person who was experiencing harm with my mom. When I was visiting my dad, I got to be that like rambunctious, closer to my full self than anywhere else. Uh, he owned a boatyard, so I used to got I got to run around the boatyard and play with tools. And I think that part of why I wasn't allowed or wasn't acknowledged as a child is my parents were afraid. I think my mom was more afraid than my dad. I think they always knew, which might be why I was told constantly, no, you are a pretty sweet girl. <laughs> but my dad never said that to me. And my dad, his nickname for me was Tiger. And that felt so much better than princess, <laughs> which is what I got called by other people. And so having that happen later in life was so validating and just life-changing. I think it's important to note that, you know, we're talking about your experience here, right? And the research is pretty clear. Kids who are not believed, kids who don't get to express, well, not just kids, people who they truly are, have significantly increased risks of suicide, substance abuse, like those things are real. And when we purposely misgender people, when we purposely don't see people who are trying to tell us who they authentically are, he has dire consequences. Yes, does. I spent most of my life um, with suicidal ideation. One attempt, like one real, like I think they're all real, but like one significantly more uh, purposeful than the other. I think that when it comes to being transgender, navigating a world that is not made for your existence is terrifying. The discrimination is everywhere. And when you add laws that reinforce this hate, uh, it makes it even harder. I mean, try navigating going shopping and not being allowed to use a bathroom. So you can't go shopping. Or you do, and then you experience harm. So there's harm at your own hands. There's harm at the hands of others. But I will say that allowing my existence and walking through the world with authenticity it's like a safety bubble in a sense. Like there's harm happening all around me. There's discrimination happening all around me. But I will not change who I am. Because I very easily could avoid some of the discrimination. Other people might think I could very easily avoid the discrimination. Just grow out my hair and put on a dress. However, that's not possible for me. I know if I were to do that, I would harm myself. 
And there have been moments, even recently, within the last year, where we have had that very conversation. Sometimes people commit microaggressions, and they don't realize the extent of the harm that is caused by those things. Something that seems innocuous like that, not hearing that you were asking simply to feel more safe in a space, lack of even acknowledging that was so harmful to you, that we had conversations about growing out your hair and putting on a dress because that would be easier. But actually it wouldn't be because it would be incredibly harmful for you. Yes, at the same time as we were having those conversations about me um, growing my hair back out, we were also having conversations about my safety plan. Uh, yes. Right? Like yes. those things were happening at the same exact time, um, even without growing out my hair, without putting on a dress. I had to think about the fact that I might need to drive myself to a hospital. Yes, and I did. I asked, I was in a safe, I was in a space that was designated as a safe space. I was in a space that was designated as welcoming and inclusive. And it wasn't at all. And when I pointed it out, I was ignored. And when I pointed it out again, I was ignored. And so then I pointed it out a third time with a little bit, a little bit louder, maybe a little bit more, hey, I need you to hear me. And then it was all turned back on me that this was my doing, that they were welcoming and inclusive, but maybe I didn't see it or it didn't matter if I didn't feel it, that they weren't changing anything. And so I removed myself from that space because that is what was safe for me. But I did. I started thinking about it and I, it was really hard. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this, but the thought of putting on a dress Nope, can't do that either. So I got to lean into this. And, and that goes back to this, you know, uh, conversation about counseling from earlier and therapy. This is what I had not worked on at all. I had never even touched the idea uh, that I had dysphoria. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as gender dysphoria until I started experiencing it. And so embarking on that journey is so important. And at the same time as doing that, I am still experiencing discrimination in in several spaces. But I just keep navigating this world and trying to make it fit for all. So you've talked just now about sort of the microaggressions that you experience because you're trans and non-binary. It's small things like misgendering me and then doing it on purpose. So I can tell when somebody forgets or accidentally without meaning to, I misgender myself every once in a while. I'll be telling a story about when I was a kid and throw in the wrong pronoun. And I feel it in every inch of my body when that happens. But it's when somebody says she or her in a paragraph 10 times because they want to make sure I know. Well, I do know. I know who I am. I am an expert in knowing who I am. And so having that questioned or having someone not realize that I consider myself to fall under the transgender umbrella and then to make uh, derogatory comments about transgender individuals, it unfortunately, it's not shocking, but it should be. And I'm thinking about an experience I had. Um, you had mentioned, or maybe I had mentioned, 
not having an example to look up to. And for a moment, I worked in a school environment, not a teacher. And when I got hired, there was this conversation about, well, what are people going to call you? Because most of the teachers were called, you know, Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. And I thought, well, Mr. feels way better than Miss. But that would take a lot of education uh, for parents and students. And somebody suggested a nickname. I happened to have a curl in my hair right in the middle of my forehead, which I heard a lot when I was a child. But uh, somebody looked at me and said, how about Super Jess? And so I went into this school environment being called Super Jess, and it stuck. Kids, families, parents, they all just, it wasn't a problem. Nobody questioned my gender. Every once in a while, there'd be a conversation amongst these very young preschool students. Is Jess a boy or is Jess a girl? And then you'd hear a third one say, Jess is just a Jess. Well, I had two students who I would not be surprised to hear later in life that they were to come out as transgender. One of them had the sweetest little pink backpack, and it was his favorite thing. And the other loved to play dress up and always wore the dresses and the high heels and really wanted to be called by a different name occasionally. Well, we had a sub one time and it was Halloween and we were talking about, you know, costumes and little guy with his pink backpack said, I want to be a princess for Halloween. And this substitute said, you mean prince. And I immediately said, Oh, and you would make such a beautiful princess. I can see the crown on your head. And those are the types of microaggressions that can be so detrimental in the life of a child. And I also know that my existence in that school made a difference for at least two students. Both sets of parents came to me a couple times and thanked me. One of the children was playing with something one time at home and parents came in and said, you must have made a big impression because my daughter was playing with cars and all of a sudden one was flying and she said, this is super Jess driving this car. And my favorite, favorite thing that I've ever heard, and I've heard it twice, so meaningful when it was my nephew, but the first time I heard it was when I worked in this school and, you know, sometimes you have posters where kids answer questions and you teacher writes the answers. And so the teacher had done that and posted these all up in the hallway. And I came out of my office and there was one that said, what's your favorite color? And so you looked at all of them. There's pink and there's purple and there's blue and there's green. And then all of a sudden there is one that says super Jess. <laughs> super Jess was their favorite color. And that was so affirming because yeah, I'm a little bit of all like, People say both and, I say all and. I want to talk a little bit about macro aggressions. You know, you, you touched on this briefly earlier about, you know, being trans and going out in public and needing to use a bathroom and then feeling like you're not able to. And so either you don't go out or you don't go to the bathroom. You know, over the last several years, there has been an onslaught of proposed legislation and fear-mongering by lawmakers and laws that they try to pass and members of the general public who fear you, fear other trans people, uh, or try to legislate against you simply because you are trans. 
So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. As I said, this isn't this isn't a microaggression. This is a macro issue. Yes, huge macro issue. When the laws reinforce hate or fear, that's what's going to exist. I'm a, a social work student right now, and not that long ago, there was a state that mandated a law that social workers could deny services to trans and disabled individuals, including trans youth. And then it changed to you're not allowed to provide services for this group who are already so marginalized. The harm that comes from that is tenfold. Not only do these laws affect the ability to provide services for someone or receive services, it also reinforces this idea that I or people like me are something to fear, which leads to microaggressions, right? So this macro level uh, rule, this macro level norm leads to these, you know, microaggressions of people when I first cut my hair, um, pulling their children away, like in a line, pulling their children closer as if I was someone capable of harm just because of what I looked like. Can you talk a little bit about lawmakers and members of the public saying that trans people shouldn't be able to use public bathrooms because they are predators? And the link between hearing that about trans people when the research is pretty clear that trans people are far more likely to experience sexual harm than they are to ever perpetrate it and what it feels like for you as somebody who has experienced you know, so much sexual harm. The uninformed belief that someone who is transgender is going to harm someone in a public bathroom, where most transgender people are probably trying to not be seen. It's sad, but it's also maddening for multiple reasons. One being that statistically, transgender people are more likely to experience harm than ever perpetrated. Additionally, the idea that sexual abuse is happening in public bathrooms, again, another statistic that is uninformed and false. And so it's, it's a challenge. It's, you know, they say anger is a secondary emotion, but I can tell you, I have become quite enraged at some of the laws. And this past year, I mean, there was an influx. I can't remember the number, but hundreds and hundreds of anti-trans bills in multiple states. And it gives this perception that I can't speak for other people, but it gives a perception that I am unsafe as someone who is not cis heteronormative. Like I don't, I don't fall under the rules. It makes me sad on a level that I can't express and angry on a level that I can't express. And it's something that you only feel when you know it. It's really hard to get someone who, who doesn't understand to recognize the harm in these laws because all the other laws reinforce this idea that there is something unsafe about someone who is transgender, which is so it's so the opposite. It's unsafe to be transgender, unfortunately. So I think that we've touched on two important topics today. And I just 
want you, Jess, if possible, to talk about why it's important that we addressed both here and anything else that you want to express that you feel like, you know, you haven't yet. Well, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I don't believe that my first experience of sexual harm where I was trafficked um, had much to do with my gender. Maybe there was a piece there, but I have no doubt that my second and third significant abusers noticed a lack of identity and a lack of self within me. So the vulnerability of being transgender or queer is just so significant when it comes to sexual harm. If a child tells you that they are questioning their gender or challenging their gender or feel they were born in the wrong body, trust that they know themselves better than you know them. And you can validate someone without fully understanding. So if you were someone who did not experience sexual harm and a person discloses to you, most people are able to find compassion without understanding. And so a cisgender person has no idea what it's like to not be cisgender. That doesn't mean that I or anyone else shouldn't be met with that same compassion and dignity for who they are. So when someone tells you they've been a victim of sexual harm, believe them. When someone tells you that they are transgender or non-binary, because not all non-binary people consider themselves transgender, they know themselves. You might be confused, but they're not. And it's okay to be confused and still be kind. I think that's huge and such an important statement that I hope everyone takes away from this conversation and really gets at the link between those topics is believing people and trusting in what they know their experiences are and what they know of themselves. And I really hope that people walk away with that (laughs) information today and use it. I also hope people recognize that growth can come in many ways and being authentic is, I believe, the fastest. (laughs) I agree. Jess. Thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I want you to know that you are a gift, and I'm really grateful for you. Not without you, Bestie. Not without you. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for having me, and I'm just so proud of you for what you're doing, and I am honored to be here. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. We would like to extend a special thanks to Jess for speaking with us today. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexis Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. 
head over to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.